The words to which I should like to call your attention this morning are to be found in Paul's epistle to the Ephesians in the third chapter and the first portion of the 17th verse. The first portion of the 17th verse in the third chapter of Paul's epistle to the Ephesians that Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith. Now let us remind us again of uh, one another again of the context and the setting of this great prayer. I feel that it should always be taken as a whole if we are to understand truly each of the individual statements. So he begins in verse 14. For this cause I bow my knees unto the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, of whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named, that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with might by his Spirit in the inner men, that Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith, that ye, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all saints what is the breadth and length and depth and height, and to know the love of Christ which passeth knowledge, that ye might be filled with all the fullness of God. Now unto him that is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think according to the power that worketh in us, unto him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus throughout all ages, world without end. Amen. We come back thus and resume our consideration of this great and mighty third chapter of Paul's epistle to the Ephesians. And we are considering this great and marvelous prayer that the apostle tells these Ephesian Christians that he is constantly praying for them. Let us remind ourselves again that here we are dealing perhaps with one of the sublimest the most glorious and most moving statements that is to be found anywhere in the entire range of the scriptures. Certainly we are here face to face with the highest heights of the Christian life and what is possible for Christian people. Uh, it's not an easy passage, therefore, but there is nothing, I say, which is more glorious than this. The people who climb mountains seem to tell us invariably that the higher you get in a way, the more difficult it gets, and yet the more exhilarating it gets, and the more wonderful it becomes. Well, it's exactly the same with the scriptures. And certainly here we are on the very mountain top of Christian experience and of the Christian life. But let us never forget this. It is something that is meant for all Christians. The apostle here was not praying for his fellow apostles only. Neither was he merely praying for the elders or the leaders of the church at Ephesus. It is a prayer that he offers for all the members of the church at Ephesus. And as he writes it to them, he obviously meant them to understand it, and indeed he assumes that they will be able to understand it. Now I say that for this reason that it does seem to me, alas, that there are so many Christians today that if uh, the moment they find anything is at all difficult, they don't attempt it. Oh, they say, I, I can't manage that. It's beyond me. 
I want a simple gospel. Well, the gospel of salvation, thank God, is so simple that a child can be saved by it. But you know, that isn't true of the whole gospel. We are meant to grow in grace. As this apostle says in his next chapter, we are not to be children, not to remain children and to be carried about with every wind of doctrine. We are to grow in grace and in the knowledge of the Lord. And these words, let us never forget, were written to people, the vast majority of whom were probably slaves, and who had no education at all, none of the advantages that we enjoy. So that I say we must use the language of the Apostle Peter, gird up the loins of our mind, gird them up. We've got to be ready for an effort. We've got to pull ourselves together. We are entering into a rarefied atmosphere. And we need to move with precision and to move with all our might and power. But let us remember this, that the apostle has already shown us the way in which to do that. His first petition, you remember, was this, that they might be strengthened with might by God's spirit in the inner men. And we've seen the reason why he offers that prayer. It's perfectly certain that without that strengthening, we cannot uh, hope to attain this glorious summit of experience. I keep on using this analogy of the climber. He's got to be clad in the right way. He may have to take his oxygen with him. He certainly can't do it by just going up in his own strength because of the rarefied atmosphere and the difficulty of the ascent. But if he does take what is provided for him, well, then he'll be able to do it. And if you and I are strengthened according to the riches of God's glory, you remember, which means all the attributes and all the power of God, if we are thus strengthened by the Spirit which God gives in this richness to us, well then, we shall be able to go on and to attain to this great height. It is, as I say, a prayer that is offered for all Christian people. And therefore, we can test ourselves at this moment, at this point, by just asking ourselves this simple question. Am I looking forward to the ascent? Does it come to me with a thrill of expectancy as I consider this glowing, mighty phrase which the apostle here puts before us? Very well, then, I say, the Holy Spirit can prepare us. And being strengthened with might according to the riches of his glory by the Spirit in the inner men, we now come face to face with this next petition, that Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith. Now, there has been a good deal of discussion as to how these two petitions are to be taken. Uh, are they more or less saying the same thing in a different way? Or does the apostle put uh, uh, the petition about being strengthened first because it is an essential preliminary to this? I have no doubt myself that the second position is the true one. Although there is a sense, of course, in which it is equally true to say that these things always more or less go together and that they cannot be divided in any ultimate sense. However, here they are, the apostle puts them in this order, the strengthening, and then that Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith. Well, now then, what does this mean? 
What exactly does this tremendous statement represent? The first way to approach it, the key to the understanding, and we must walk, as I've said, warily, carefully, circumspectly. The first thing to realize is this, that it is a prayer that is offered for believers. Now, I emphasize that for this reason, that a phrase has gained currency in connection with evangelism, which has often confused people when they've come to this particular verse. People very often when they give their experience in talking about their conversions say, yes, it's 20 years ago since I first received Christ into my heart. And evangelists often put their message in that way. They ask people whether they will receive Christ into their hearts. Well, there is a sense, of course, in which that is right and true. But it's not a scriptural phrase. And indeed, as I want to try to show you, it can be most misleading, particularly when you come to a phrase like this one which we're looking at together this morning. Because I remind you that the apostle is offering this prayer for people who are already believers. Now, he is reminded of them, them of that abundantly. He tells them that when they first heard the gospel in whom also he says, after that... Uh, after he heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom ye also trusted, and in whom also after that he believed, ye were sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise. Not only that, in the second chapter, he has reminded them that they who had been dead in trespasses and sins have already been quickened with Christ, and they've been raised together with him, and have been made to sit together in heavenly places, in Christ Jesus. They were the people who once were afar off, but now have been made nigh and brought nigh by the blood of Christ. They're already believers. They're already united to Christ as their head. They are already members of his body, which is the church. They're in him and he is in them. Now, it is, I say, obviously essential that we should realize all that and bear it in mind as we come to consider this particular petition. The apostle, in other words, is not praying that these people may become Christians. And that is where you see that phrase about receiving Christ into your heart uh, to cover the term conversion is so misleading. He is praying that Christ may dwell in their hearts by faith, in whom Christ is already present. They have already believed. He is not praying for their conversion, not praying for their salvation, not praying for their justification. All that is taken for granted. All that has already taken place. But uh, lest there may be anyone who's in any doubt about this, let me uh, put it to you like this. Take that phrase that we were considering a fortnight ago, where the apostle says in the second epistle to the Corinthians, chapter 13, fifth verse, Know ye not your own selves how that Jesus Christ is in you, except he be a reprobate? Now, there's a perfectly plain statement. He says, you do realize, don't you, that Jesus Christ is in you? That is to say, if you're believers at all, if you're not reprobate. If you are reprobates, well, then Christ is not in you. But if you're a believer, if you're a Christian, well, then Jesus Christ is in you. 
So you can't be a Christian at all without Jesus Christ in some sense being in you. And uh, also you remember that statement which he makes in writing to the Romans in chapter 8 and verse 9. If any man have not the spirit of Christ, he is none of his. Now then, all of that was true of these Ephesians. They're already Christian. Ah, yes, and it's because they are Christian he goes on to offer this prayer for them. That they may be strengthened with might according to the riches of his glory by his spirit in the inner men. That Christ may dwell in their hearts by faith. Very well then, says someone, what exactly does this mean? What is the difference between this and that which you have already been describing as the normal state, the inevitable state of all who are truly Christian? The answer, it seems to me, is to be found primarily in the word dwell. That Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith. Now, this word which is translated here as dwell is a most interesting and a most important word. It's a compound word. It's a word which basically means to live in as a house. That's the fundamental word. To live in as a house. But the apostle put a, a word, a prefix to that word. And the meaning of the prefix is down. So he's made a word, if you like, by putting a prefix to a word which means to live in as a house. To down, to live in as a house, which being put together we can translate like this. To settle down in and to be at home. Now, you see, he deliberately puts on the prefix down to give this idea of settling down, making your home, not being therefore just a, a kind of visitor or someone who resides in the place in some general sense. It goes beyond it. It's a settling down. It's a taking up your abode remaining there in a kind of permanent manner. Now there, it seems to me, is the key to the whole situation. But perhaps we can put it still more clearly by invoking the aid of that uh, portion of the third chapter of the book of Revelation with the message to the church of the Laodiceans and especially the 20th verse. You remember it, don't you? The verse which says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come in unto him and will sup with him and he with me. Now then, there is the statement. I suppose that there is no single statement of Scripture which is more frequently misunderstood and more misused and abused than that particular statement you will find almost invariably that that statement is used in an evangelistic sense, as I was saying just now. The picture is painted of Christ standing outside the shut door of the sinner, the unbeliever. And it's put in affecting terms, and they're pleaded with to open the door to him and to let him in and to receive Christ into their hearts. They say he's telling you that he's standing at the door of your heart and knocking and beseeching you to open the door that he may enter in. But you know that's quite wrong. 
that is completely false. That isn't what Revelation 3.20 says at all. That letter to the church of the Laodiceans is, of course, a letter to the church. This is what the Spirit saith to the churches. The words are never addressed to an unbeliever. They are words that are addressed directly to those who are already Christians and who are already within the Christian church. Chapters 2 and 3 of the book of Revelation must always be considered in that way. They are addressed to be Christian people, to believing people, to people who have already believed on the Lord Jesus Christ and who are joined to him, who are in him and he in them. And yet this is the message that is addressed to them. And you notice that it is addressed very particularly to a church like the church of the Laodiceans. It is a church. They are Christian people. Yes, but they're in a very bad condition. They're neither hot nor cold. They think that they're rich and that they have everything, whereas in reality they're very poor and they're naked and they're blind and they're empty. Now then, it is to such Christians that our Lord says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. And if any man will open unto me, I will enter in, and I will sup with him, and he with me. Very well, what is this condition? Well, it's a condition, clearly, in which these people are Christian. They have life. They have a spiritual life. But it's in a very poor and in a very immature condition. There is a sense in which they know the Lord Jesus Christ, but there is another sense in which they don't know him. They're in relationship to him, yes, but they're not controlled by him. They're certainly in a position in which they're having dealings with him, but what is not true of them is this. He is not in the center of their lives. He's not really in their hearts. He's not dwelling there. He's not settled down there. He's not taken up his abode there. Now, I think that there in that letter to the church of the Laodiceans, we have the real key to the understanding of this petition, which is here being offered by the great apostle. So what he's saying to these Ephesians is this, yes, I thank God for all that's happened to you. But if you only realized what is yet possible, if you only knew this further intimacy with him that is a possibility for you, ah, that's why I'm praying for you, and I'm praying for it constantly. Of course, this will never happen to you until you have been strengthened by the Spirit. You've got to be prepared for this. As the home is prepared for some great and distinguished guest, you need to be prepared. As I've already been telling you, he says in effect in the previous chapter, that the whole church is made and meant to be a habitation for God through the Spirit. So you, individually, are habitations for Christ through the Spirit. Now, this hasn't happened to these Ephesians. Paul wants it to happen. And, of course, he wants it to happen because he himself knows exactly what this means. He knows what it is to experience this. You see, this is a man who is able to say, as he says in writing to the Galatians in the second chapter and the 20th verse, and listen to it, I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. 
And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and who gave himself for me. That's the same thing as this. Paul repeats himself. He puts it in a slightly different manner. But that's what he means here. He was in that position in which he could say without any apology or any explanation, I live, yet not I. Christ liveth in me. Now, he's praying here for these people that they may come to that position and that they may have a like experience. Or, if you like, you can take it in terms of that passage out of the 14th chapter of the Gospel according to St. John, which we had read together just now. Did you notice it? Where our Lord, on the verge of leaving them, on the very eve of his crucifixion, turns to these disciples who are so wretched and unhappy and crestfallen because he has just told them that he's going to leave them. He says, don't be upset. Let not your heart be troubled. Neither let it be afraid. He says, I am going to leave you in one sense. But you know, he says, I'm going to come to you in another sense. And it's there that he introduces this gospel of the Holy Spirit coming in this peculiar manner. And then he says that as the result of the coming of the Spirit in that way, he himself is going to come back to them and he's going to dwell in them and take up his abode in them. Let me read you the verses again. Take the 20th verse of that 14th chapter. At that day, he says, ye shall know that I am in my Father and ye in me and I in you. Now, they didn't know it then. At that day, ye shall know that. Now, at that point when he was speaking to them, they were already Christian. In a few moments, he's going to say to them, Now are ye clean through the word which I have spoken unto you. He differentiates them from the world in, in chapter 17. He says, I pray for you. I pray not for the world. He isn't praying for the world, but for these people. They are Christians. But they don't know this yet. At that day, he says, ye shall know it that you are in me and that I am in you. Or then take 20, verse 21. Have you ever considered the meaning of this? He's still talking about this Christian men to whom the Spirit has come and who's keeping his commandments. He says, I will love him and will manifest myself to him. And he says that he's not going to manifest himself like that to the world, but only to this man who is already a Christian. I will manifest myself to him. What's the meaning of that? Does it just mean the general revelation that we've got in the scriptures? Well, it can't mean that, because these people have already believed that, and these Ephesians have already believed that before Paul offers this prayer for them. They've already believed on him. They've already accepted the revelation in general. This is more. I will manifest myself to him. That's what it means. And then, you see, he goes on in verse 23 and says this, speaking of himself and the Father. He says, we will come unto him and will make our abode with him. Now, as you know, that's a characteristic word of John's gospel. This word abiding or making our abode or taking up our abode. It's the same idea of settling down, taking a permanent residence. 
not just as it were occasionally being present, but permanently there, settling down, taking up residence, making an abode. Now all this quite clearly is something that is entirely beyond believing. It's entirely beyond justification. It is entirely beyond salvation and the experience of the forgiveness of sins. In other words, we might well quote again at this point those words of Spurgeon, which I quoted when we were last dealing with this section on the 16th of December. There is a point in the experience of the Christian which is as much above the experience of the ordinary Christian as the experience of the ordinary Christian is above the experience of the man who is not a Christian at all. And that is what we are looking at together once more. I will manifest myself unto him. I will take up my abode in him. What's it mean? What is the apostle really praying for here? Well, let's just look at one other word before I answer the question. This word, dwell, suggests all that. But you notice he even emphasizes it by putting it like this. That Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith. Now, there is no doubt that this again was put in very deliberately. Because the heart means in scripture generally the very center of the personality. It doesn't mean only the seat of the affections. It does mean that it includes that. But the heart in scripture includes the mind, the understanding, and the will as well as the seat of the affections. It's the very center of personality. It is the very citadel of the soul. And therefore what the apostle is praying is that Christ may dwell in their hearts by faith. Now, that means surely this. His uh, desire for them that Christ may dwell not only in their minds, not only in their intellects, but also, as I say, in the center of the personality. Now, he was already in the minds of these people. He was already in their intellects. He had already believed. But there is all the difference in the world between just being a believer and having Christ dwelling in your heart. That's the distinction. It is obviously, I say, and patently the distinction which Paul is drawing here in the case of these Ephesians, of whom he has said such tremendous things. But it is vitally important that we should take this to ourselves. To believe in the Lord Jesus Christ is not the end of Christianity. It's the merest beginning. To believe the truth about his person and about his work, it's absolutely essential. And if we don't subscribe to these truths, we are just not Christians at all. No man can be a Christian unless he believes on the Lord Jesus Christ in that sense. But that isn't the thing the apostle has got in his mind at all. You can, as it were, have Christ in your mind and in your intellect and still not be able to say, I live yet not I. No, his desire is that Christ may also dwell in their hearts. 
that Christ may dwell in their wills, that Christ may be the dominating factor in the whole of their life, controlling it and directing it, Christ, as it were, the very heart of their hearts, the heart of their lives. Now then, what does this mean? And it's here, of course, we come into that rarefied atmosphere to which I have been referring. But it cannot mean anything less than this. If Christ is in your heart, well then I say that Christ has manifested himself to you. And when Christ manifests himself to us, it is something which is real, it is something which is actual. It is something about which there is no doubt at all. And as you read the experiences of some of the saints of the past, you will find that they are very careful to draw this distinction. Ah, they say there was a time when I came to believe in him and when I had a full assurance that my sins were forgiven. I knew that I was related to him. I knew that I was in him. I found peace and rest for my soul. And they say, for a while and for years perhaps, I thought that was the whole of Christianity and I was quite pleased with it. But then they began to discover that that was to be in the Laodicean position. And that there was something bigger, altogether vaster and greater, which they had never known at all. They came across that phrase in which he says, I will manifest myself to him. And they said, what's this? Has Christ manifested himself to me? I don't know what this means. I believe in him, and I am aware of his general influence upon me. But what does he mean by manifesting himself? It's such a specific statement. And then they began to realize that they'd never known this, which can be put in this form. When Christ manifests himself to us, he becomes real to us as a person. And it therefore means to know him in a personal sense. It is, in, in other words, you see, the fulfillment of all that he promises there in the 14th chapter of the Gospel according to St. John. Very well then, let me put it at this moment in the form of a question. Do you really know the Lord Jesus Christ personally? Do you know him as a person? Is he, as a person, real to you? Has he manifested himself to you in that way? Now, it's perfectly clear that that had happened in the case of the Apostle Paul. Not only had he seen him actually on the road to Damascus, not only had he had a vision later in the temple, in addition to that and above that, he talks in writing to the Galatians in the first chapter, when it pleased God to manifest his Son in me. And he says, in me and not to me. It is an inward manifestation of the Son of God in which he is made as real to us as any other person, more so. I cannot do anything better once more than to put it to you in the words of that little verse which Hudson Taylor used to pray for himself every day of his life. Lord Jesus, make thyself to me 
a living, bright reality, more present to faith's vision keen than any outward object seen, more dear, more intimately nigh than e'en the sweetest earthly tie. That's what it means. And that is the thing for which the Apostle is praying here on behalf of these Ephesians. Ah, he seems to say, I know that you're Christians. I know that there is a sense in which Christ is in you. You can't be a Christian without that. You can't be a Christian without being united with him as the head. And you are in him and he is in you. But this goes beyond that. Do you know him? Is Christ himself at the center of your life? Is his own person real to you and known to you? Or is he someone who is vaguely in the distance? Uh, someone whom you uh, approach only in terms of belief? Has he really manifested himself to you? Now, there is a, another thing about this actual statement which uh, makes this exposition still more sure. The very tense of the verb which the Apostle is here using in connection with dwelling makes this quite certain. It's the aorist, which carries the meaning of something that happens once and forever, as it were. And here he's praying, therefore, for something which isn't a general influence, but there is a point when a man says, up to that moment I hadn't really known Christ personally, and then he manifested himself to me, and I knew him. He became real and living to me. And it was a definite moment. And obviously this must be true. You either have known a person or you haven't known a person. You've either seen a person or you haven't seen a person. I'm not talking in this instance of seeing with the visible or the naked eye. This is not a question of visions or of trances or of ecstasies. It's a spiritual knowing of Christ. The Holy Spirit does that. He brings him to us, and through the Spirit he manifests himself so that he is real and living and true. Well, now take that great hymn of Lavater's, which we sang just now before I began to preach. That's the thing that Lavater was praying for when he asks him, O oh, Jesus Christ, grow thou in me, and all things else recede. You notice how he goes on and prays that he may become more real, more dear, his one passion, the passion of his soul. Now, that only becomes true when one has this personal knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. And, of course, that leads to a conscious sense of fellowship with him and of enjoyment of him. So I again ask the obvious question. Do we know what it is to enjoy a conscious fellowship with the Lord Jesus Christ? Let's be clear about this. You can be a Christian without that. Thank God for that. You can be a Christian without enjoying conscious fellowship with him. You can be in the position in which you are relying upon him, relying upon his perfect work on your behalf, and you can even be praying to him, and yet you haven't a conscious fellowship, a conscious realization of his nearness, and a conscious enjoyment of him. That is what the apostle desires for these Ephesians, that Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith. 
And when this is true, of course, he obviously does control everything. Now let me sum it up for you by putting it again in the words of this apostle elsewhere. It is when Christ is so known to us and in our hearts that we can say honestly and truthfully, I live, yet not I. It is in that condition in which we can say, I can do all things through Christ which strengtheneth me. Now, the apostle isn't bursting when he's saying things like that. And you know, my friends, I'm afraid that sometimes as we read these great scriptures, we tend to regard the apostle as if he was just a literary man who indulges in hyperbole. That's not the case. When the apostle uses these phrases, he is being strictly accurate. He is stating his experience. It was absolutely true of him. He so knew the Lord Jesus Christ that he can say, I can do all things through Christ which strengtheneth me. I know both how to be abased and how to abound. I know how to be rich and how to be poor. It doesn't matter what happens to me. As long as he is here, he strengthens me and I can do everything. I'm not alone. It is indeed most elevated doctrine, isn't it? But I'll take you one step further. This presence of Christ in the heart is something real. I mean by that, that it doesn't just mean that he is present through the Spirit. It doesn't mean that he is present in the sense that he is influencing us and giving us of his graces and enabling us to feel certain of his influences. No, no, it goes beyond it. It means that he himself, in some mystical sense that we cannot begin to understand, really does dwell in us. Now, let me give you a comparison. You remember the apostle is uh, reprimanding the Corinthian Christians for being guilty of certain bodily sins of the flesh. And this is how he puts it to them. He says, Know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost which is in you. Now, he doesn't mean by that that the Holy Spirit is influencing us. He says, know ye not that you are body. And when he says body, he means body. He means flesh and bones and sinews. He means my physical frame. He says, know you not, those of you who are Christians, that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost which is in you. Not his influence. He himself is in you. And that's why it's such a terrible thing to sin with your body. Now that's the way in which you see the Christian faces sin. You don't just look at the particular sin and say that's unworthy. I shouldn't do that. This is the apostle's method. He says you've got to realize that in that body of yours the Holy Spirit is resident. Dwelling. And you are using the temple of the Holy Ghost in that way. Very well. As the Holy Ghost, it's beyond our understanding, but as the Holy Ghost dwells in our bodies, so the Lord Jesus Christ comes in in this way. 
He's standing and knocking at the door of the heart of the Christian who doesn't know him. And he says, I would like you to know me. If you only open that door, I'll come in and I'll manifest and I'll sit down and I'll sup with you and you with me. I'll know you and you'll know me with an intimacy that you've never experienced. And I'll come into you and I'll dwell within you. It is as real as that. Now you notice that all this becomes possible by faith. That Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith. What's it mean by faith? I can tell you in a few words. It's just this. It is faith that reveals this possibility to us. Now let me put it in the form of a question. Had you realized that this was a possibility for you until this morning? You see, you can read the scriptures with a great intellect, but if you haven't got faith, you'll read over a thing like this without understanding what it means. You've probably many times read this third chapter of Ephesians, and you've said, marvelous, wasn't it wonderful? How eloquent the apostle is. I feel like getting up and shouting. Yes, but had you realized that it means that Christ will come right into your heart and you'll know him in a sense in which you don't even know this building nor anything else. It's faith who reve that reveals the possibility to us. Yes, but it's faith also that enables us to believe that this is a reality and not just a phrase. The man who hasn't got faith will never believe it. I can imagine a man listening to me this morning and saying, Now what was all that about? I really have no idea what he's been talking about. He seemed to be up in the clouds somewhere. And I'm a practical man and I've got to meet sin, temptation and sin. And I'm living in the world and I'm surrounded by problems. And What was all this? Now if a man speaks like that, he's just saying that he hasn't got faith. And because he hasn't got faith, he'll never know this. This is known by faith. Faith reveals the thing as a reality. Yes, but it goes beyond it. It reveals that it is a reality for me. A reality for you. So that you say to yourself as you read it or as you hear it, that is God's word. And it says that that is possible to any Christian, to all Christians. Well, therefore it's possible for me. And it is possible for me to know the Lord Jesus Christ in this intimate manner. Faith lays hold upon the promise personally and individually. It is faith alone that enables a man to believe God's word and to accept it fully and to rely upon it. And then, of course, believing it, he then begins to pray for it. You see, the apostle was praying without ceasing for these Ephesians. He bows his knee before the Father, and he prays that they may be strengthened in order that this may happen. And if you and I believe it, we from this moment will begin to pray this for ourselves. We will say, I don't know Christ like that, and I want to know him, and it's possible, and I'm going to ask for this. So you go to God in faith with confidence, with boldness, and with assurance. You say, I know this doesn't depend upon me, but I pray that you would strengthen me with might by the Spirit in my inner men, that I may get this knowledge, that he may manifest himself to me. I want to know him. I want him to live in my life and to control the whole of my being. You begin to pray it, and you'll go on praying it in faith. Until some marvelous moment comes.
and you suddenly find yourself knowing Christ. He will have manifested himself to you and he will take up his abode and settle down in your heart. And you will say, how could I have spent so many years satisfied with the mere beginnings of Christianity when all this was so wondrously and gloriously possible to me. Amen.